0: I've shared before, uh, that I worked at a camp throughout my years of college. I was a lifeguard for a year. I did some worship leading a couple of years and then kind of a staff coordinator for a year or two. And, uh, one of the traditions that, that I think both the children and the counselor sort of dreaded was that each year each week when we had a new group of campers at the very beginning of the week we would get everybody together in their their villages we had clusters of cabins called the village and so the village leader who was me the last couple of years uh the village leader would get the the cabins together and we would go over the rules of the camp you know we tried to make it fun I think we did a song one year, we did a skit one year, we tried to keep their attention. It's their first day of camp, they're bouncing off the walls, they're so excited to be there, and we have to sit them down and say, okay, now do this, don't do this, don't go here, but you can go here. We had to give them the rules. But there was grace in the rules. And I don't mean grace as an exception to the rule. I mean the rules themselves were gracious. Because our goal as counselors, our goal as camp staff, was for them to have the best week ever. That's what we wanted. We wanted them to have a phenomenally fun week and to draw closer to God to hear the gospel and have their lives changed. So the rules were there to make sure that happened. That's grace. So often we look at rules and say, oh, they're there to kill my fun. They're there to keep me from having fun. But we understood at camp, one of the things I understood very clearly, is that if you let your campers stay up till two o'clock in the morning, the next day was not fun for anyone. (laughs) So there were rules. Lights out, mouths closed, go to bed. Because we knew the next day we wanted them to have fun. We are in a sermon series called Focal Point. We're walking through all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. Big, high overview of the main themes and the main occurrences throughout Scripture. We've talked about creation so far. We looked at the fall of Adam and Eve, sin coming into the world. We looked at God reaching into this sinful world and establishing a relationship with Abraham and his offspring. We talked about the Exodus and God saving his people out of Egypt. And then last week, we we got up to this point where God has brought his people out of Egypt into the desert, and he brings them to a mountain. And there he has a meeting with them. And he gives them what we call the Old Testament law. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, we started it last week. We looked at a major part of the Old Testament law, which is the tabernacle, which later on became the temple. And we looked at the importance there of God dwelling with them, of them living in relationship with God, what it took to take care of their sin through the animal sacrifices there at the tabernacle. But today we need to look at the rest of the law. And I wanted to look at the tabernacle first because I don't think the law makes sense without understanding that God was dwelling there among them and wanted a relationship with them. So if you missed that sermon, I highly encourage you to go back and and listen to it or or look at that one. I think the video worked that week, who knows. But you can check that out online. But today I want to talk about the Old Testament law, God's gracious law. And what I want to plant in your mind is an understanding that God's law has an amazing amount of grace. God's law has an amazing amount of grace. It is not contrary to his grace. It is full of his grace. Now, we need to start by answering this question. And I was reminded of this by my nine-year-old daughter because we were one morning, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I don't even know what passage we were studying in our family devotions, but the topic of the law came up, and we were talking about how some of it applies to us, some of it we don't have to fulfill anymore. And my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter, she raised her hand, and I've told her many times, family devotions, honey, you don't have to raise your hand. She did it anyway. I guess it's better than nothing. And she asked this, Daddy, are you saying Christians don't have to obey laws? And I thought, oops, <laughs> we better define our terms. <laughs> I said, no, no, you know, there's a speed limit. We should drive the speed limit. There, there are laws and we have to obey the laws of the land unless they contradict God's law. So what do we mean when we look at God's gracious law? What do we mean by the law? When God rescues his people, the Israelites, Jewish people of the Old Testament, he brings them into the wilderness and he meets with them on this mountain. He says this to Moses, their leader, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. It says, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The Old Testament law that we're talking about here was the law given in the Old Testament to the Jewish nation that was about to start their journey as a brand new nation in the promised land. The Old Testament law was their national or civic law. It was their government system. It was their rules of how their country was going to work. But it is also very unique in that it is their religious law. It defined what the relationship between them and God would look like. The Old Testament law is pattern after times in that culture when a king would conquer people and then say, now this is how this relationship's going to work. And so the people understood God has saved them. He has claimed them for his own. And he's telling them now, now we need to understand, you need to understand how this relationship is going to work. The law spans from Exodus chapter 20 all the way through the end of the book, chapter 40. And Exodus is mostly, as we talked about last week, mostly about the tabernacle. God continues giving them the book of the law in Leviticus, and then he repeats a lot of the same things in Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy literally means second giving of the law. Deutero nomos, second giving of the law. And this is right before they enter the promised land, and he's reminding them of what this is going to look like, what the relationship will be. The law contains various offerings and sacrifices they had to bring. It contains instructions for the priest that would serve in the tabernacle each and every day. There's actually a section on skin disease and molds that would help them to understand how to deal with certain ailments and illnesses and infections in their body or in their home. There's laws about being religiously pure or clean, things they should not do because they are God's people, and they are called to be different. There are numerous laws about appropriate human relationships, especially including human sexual relationships. There's laws about foods they should or should not eat, laws about festivals they should celebrate every year to remember what God has done. There's laws about how their government's going to work, who's going to judge and make decisions, and if they have a king one day, what is he supposed to do? There's laws about disputes or various crimes. There's a lot of laws about caring for the poor and the vulnerable members of their society. I wanted to run through that because I want to be careful here. I don't assume that anyone here is familiar with the Old Testament law. If you're like me and you've tried to read through the Bible in a year or something, usually it's about the time you hit Exodus that you go, oh my goodness. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what he's talking about with the color of a sore on that person's skin, but I don't know what to do with this. And our eyes kind of glaze over and we start skipping ahead or something. A lot of Christians take the the mindset of, well, we're New Testament Christians. We have Jesus and the cross. That's true. Well, this was an Old Testament law given to the Jewish people. We're not Jewish people. And that's probably true. But I think we go too far when we say it has nothing to do with us. There is so much to learn from the Old Testament law. And if you remember at the beginning of this series, I put up for you 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's why we're doing this series. It's why each and every Sunday in our Sunday school class, our Bible studies, we are digging into scripture. All scripture does not have a parentheses after it, except for the Old Testament law. It's all scripture is useful. So I want us today to take a very high level look at the Old Testament law. And I hope today you come away from this understanding, appreciating God for what he has for us in the Old Testament law. Now, we're not going to get into all the individual laws. There's no way we have time for that. But I want us to understand what we're talking about. This was a law not given to all people. That's important to understand. This was given to the Jewish people at the time of the Exodus when God saved them. It defines how they are to live as God's people. We can learn from it, but this law was not given to us for us. This is why I've left this passage up on the screen. Exodus chapter 3 Uh, Or I'm sorry, 19 verses 3 through 6. In chapter 6, we see something so crucial to understanding the law. Here we see that God had a purpose for the Old Testament Israelites. That purpose is that they are to be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are to be set apart. They have a role in the world to act on God's behalf and be his representatives. If you remember all the way back to God's promise to Abraham, he said to Abraham, I will bless you and through you, I will bless the whole earth. So now we're getting into the through you. How does that work? How is God going to work through Abraham and his descendants to bless the earth? And one of the ways he's going to do it is by setting the Jewish people the Old Testament up as an example of what it looks like to live in a gracious, loving relationship with a holy, powerful, sovereign God. This is who they are called to be. But if we go back and look at verse 4, we see another important aspect. And I think this is where so many Christians and a lot of non-Christians struggle with the law. God starts by saying, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. You see, he reminds them, I have saved you. I have saved you. We too often, as New Testament Christians, we think, well, God saved people by the law in the Old Testament. That is not true. God did not save them by the law. Over and over again, he reminds them, I have saved you. This is why you are to live this out. The law follows salvation. It never leads to it. God had saved them by his grace. Salvation is always, has always been, and will always be through God's grace. So as we look at some of these important aspects of the law, let's remember we're talking about this law that God gave to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, how they were to live as his people. Because of this, some of the laws won't apply to us in the same way today. Again, we're not going to have time to look at every single one and does it apply or not or how. But in a way, all of the law does apply to us. And that's what I want to look at today. What are the ways in which the entirety of the Old Testament law applies to us in such a way that we are to learn from it and it should inform us in our relationship with God? So I'm not going to put this into a song and I'm not going to put into a skit, but I hope that you will pay attention and not to be too antsy like the, the kids at camp as we dig into the Old Testament law. And the first thing we need to know is that the Old Testament law is about our gracious God. The Old Testament law is not just a list of rules. It is a revelation and exposing an explanation of who God is. Who God is. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 20. Right away, you'll probably see a subheading that is very familiar to you. Probably the first thing most people think about when they think about God's law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make idols. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. And some people take this to, as kind of the sum total of the law. I, I think that's stretching it a little bit. I like to think of the Ten Commandments as kind of a syllabus. You remember syllabi? When you're in college or when you're in your school and at the beginning of the semester you're like, this is what you're going to talk about throughout the semester. Now, that's not the teacher giving you the script that they're going to read from each and every day. It's an overview, a highlight of the main points. The rest of the law informs what God means by the Ten Commandments. But what I want to draw your attention to is the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. Because this is the most important verse in the entirety of the Old Testament law. And it is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. God is about to give the law. He's about to start with the Ten Commandments. But first, he wants them to focus on the most important point. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. All of the law hangs on those words. God saying, I am God, and I am the one who saved you. All the rest of the law flows from that. I am God, and I am the one who saved you. Now this is how you are to live. Throughout the Old Testament law, there are several repeated phrases. And this is a big one. I am the Lord your God. I did a search and I found over 55 times in the Old Testament law that God repeats this phrase. And they are in some very unique settings. There's one place this makes sense. They should only worship God, the one true God, Yahweh. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. But there are seemingly mundane, everyday laws where God still says, do this because I am the Lord, your God. He tells them to respect the elderly in Leviticus 19.32. Why? Because he is God. He tells them to treat foreigners who live among them well in Exodus 19.34. Why? Because he is God. He tells them to be honest in their business practices. Why? Because he is God. Now, isn't it interesting? He could have said, well, because it's a good business practice and it's fair and helps other people and it's good for the economy. He says, no, do this because I am the Lord. He tells the farmers when they're clearing their fields to leave some of the fruit of their vineyards and and in other places he talks about other crops. Leave some of it behind for the poor among you To have something to eat. Why? Because he is God. Over and over again, God reminds them that they are to obey these things because of who he is. They were to live differently. They were to be set apart. And the word that we use for that is holy. Set apart for a purpose. They had a special place in this world, a special purpose in their life, and they were to be set apart and be holy because of who God is. The Old Testament law cannot be understood or obeyed without a relationship with God. It can't be. Because the whole law hinges on, hangs on, I am the Lord your God who saved you. I feel often as Christians, we make a huge mistake here when we try to take the Ten Commandments and push them on our world and say, live this way. They can't. They can't do it. And if they live that way, even if they could, apart from a relationship with God, it wouldn't make a difference. Our people don't need a list of rules on the walls of our courthouses. They need a risen Savior who has changed their hearts. The law will make no sense apart from a relationship with God. The people were to live differently, be changed because of this relationship with God. They were not to worship any other God because the one true God is the one who saved them. Only God could tell them how to worship him. That's why he gives them the tabernacle and all the rules and regulations. He says, I saved you. This is how you are to worship me. Their obedience to the Old Testament law was to be a response to an acknowledgement of the truth that they believed in. Our God has saved us and our God lives among us. So the Old Testament law is about our gracious God. And and this is where I think we can grab hold of this as Christians, New Testament Christians today, and understand some of the application to ourselves. God has never changed. He is still holy. We also have been called on a mission with him to be his representatives in this world. And we are to respond to the salvation that God has given us, first by faith, trusting in him, and secondly, by obedience, living out that faith. The Bible makes it very clear from the very beginning, and especially in the Old Testament law, to be in a relationship with God is to be changed by your relationship with God. God changes us because he knows what's best for us. Now, another way that I think we can understand the Old Testament law is that the Old Testament law graciously reveals and restrains sin. We go back several weeks. We talked about Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the they ate of the fruit and sin entered the world. And then we started looking at the progression of history since then. And there was this downward spiral. You have a brother that kills another brother. You have a long list of, of genealogy, a of father, son, 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 and it just keeps going. And for each one, it says, and then he died and then he died and then he died. We got to the Tower of Babel, and they were trying to kind of make sense of life on their own and build their own tower to make sense of everything and kind of worship whatever they wanted to worship, mostly themselves. And God frustrates their plans and scatters them. And then he reaches out to Abraham. But imagine for a moment. Imagine living in a world where no one knows who God is, has any idea of right or wrong, and doesn't care to have a relationship with him. Now, now I know some of you right away will be like, well, that's the world we live in. I see it on the news every day. It's not the world we live in. Because the law was given. Jesus Christ has come. People might choose to forget. They might ignore it. They might not be familiar with it. But those things are at least in some way at work in our world. We don't know how bad it could truly be. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Paul says this. There is no one... Righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no way that humanity that has rejected God and is in a sinful state, there is no way we are going to fix ourselves up and find our way back to God. There's no way. There's no way on our own, apart from God's revelation, we're going to understand what is good for us and what is not. There's no way. And imagine humanity having no relationship with God, no concept of what is right and wrong, and God just shows up and says, Stop sinning. And we go, What's sin? And he says, Just stop it, or I'm going to judge you. There is grace in revealing what is sin. There is grace in telling his people what is right and what is wrong. God didn't leave us to just figure it out on our own. God didn't put it to a popular vote and say, what do you think will make you happy? God told them what is right and what is wrong. Some interesting aspects of how the law graciously reveals sin to us. Our world is broken because of sin. Illness exists in the world because of sin. Now be careful, I'm not saying if you're sick, it's your own fault, you're a sinner. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that genetics, DNA, biology, just in general, does not work the way it was supposed to from the Garden of Eden because sin is at work in the world in general. You with me? Okay. So imagine people And they look at a sore on their arm and they go, is this going to kill me? Imagine people in, in a world that they have no concept of antibiotics or communicable diseases. They don't understand these things. And in His grace, God says, that sore is that color, you need to quarantine. And if it's that color, you're okay. We read that as gross. I think they would have read this as, Thank you. They, they show up one day and they move the bed away from the wall. <gasps> There's a little bit of mold there. God in His grace told them, in this case, if it's this color, get out of the house and tear it down because that mold will kill you. Or if it's this color, you're okay. Just clean it up. That's grace. The law also defines sin in broken human relationships. If we're all sinners doing our own thing and everything seems to just make us happy and we want it the way we want it, and we're wondering why are things not working? Why are we not getting along with each other? And God in His grace comes in and He tells us about the sin of broken human relationships and how we are to treat people, how we are to show respect to one another, how we are to show love to one another. God also gives grace in pointing out the sin of our broken relationship with Him. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament law, He reminds them He is their God. And He gives them a way to worship Him. He communicates with them. But not only does the law define what sin is and reveal what sin is, it gives a way of restraining sin. If the Israelites were to follow God's law, it would keep them and their sin from being as bad as it could be. That's an act of blessing and grace. They were to live differently, holy, living out the law. It would be a check upon their sin. So the Old Testament law graciously reveals and restrains sin among the Israelites, or at least it was supposed to. That still applies to us. It is grace when we come to scripture and God says, don't do this. Oh, as children, we want to say, oh, but I know better, God. I've got this. I can take my ball and play in the street. You don't know what you're talking about. But we don't know what we're talking about. And a gracious and loving God is telling us, don't do that. It's wrong. Those things still apply to us, and we still, still see those things in the New Testament. Another way the Old Testament law helps us is that it points to God's grace to us. As we already saw, it reveals sin, and that's an act of grace. But what good would it be to point out what somebody is doing that is wrong if you don't also point to a solution. The law provided a way to deal with their sins. Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2 starts this way. Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, and then the rest of the chapter of Leviticus chapter 4 deals with various people, their community, a priest, the whole community, and it talks about what to do when they sin. Think about that. God knew they would sin. He said, this is what sin is, this is what you are to do, and this is what you're not to do, but if you do. Because he knew, he knew they would sin. And throughout that chapter, various sacrifices are commanded, an animal that must die in their place to pay the price for their sin. And then at the end of the chapter, Leviticus 4.35, At the very end of this verse, God says, in this way the priest will make atonement for them because of the sin they have committed and they will be forgiven. Right there in the law, God provides for them a way for something to take their place, to take their punishment, to give its life in their place. God graciously provides a way for his people to be forgiven of sin. The Old Testament law makes it clear there is a penalty for sin. That sin is death. But it also makes it clear that God in his grace provides a way of salvation through something dying as a substitution in their place. Now, we know though, we know the Old Testament law was not enough. We know this because the Old Testament people struggled and never kept it perfectly, that their hearts were not being changed. And we know it from the New Testament when Hebrews 10.11 tells us, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament law could not do what needed to be done. It could not accomplish salvation. It could only point In a direction. And it points to the need for a perfect sacrifice. The author of Hebrews in verse 10 of chapter 10 says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament. All of these people saying, I am a sinner. I want to be right with God. God has provided a way for an animal to die in my place. But they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes. And we hear these words, He died for sin once for all. Hebrews 10.12 continues this thought, But when this priest, talking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrifices are finished, fulfilled. The Old Testament law points to God's grace to us. It points to the fact that it reveals and restrains sin, but it also shows us the solution for our sin, that God provides a way for something to die in our place. It points ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take away the sin of the world. That, my friends, is an incredible amount of grace. Grace is all throughout the Old Testament law. So what do we do with this today? What do we do with the Old Testament today? We are not Israel. We are not the Jewish people of the Old Testament. And the law was given to them as their law. It is not our national law today. I also have news for you. America, the United States, is not God's chosen nation through which to work in the world today. He never said that. Never. So many Christians have adopted this mindset America's God's nation. Praise God that at some times we've been more Christian than others. We have no covenant from God. No prophet legitimately has stood up and said, I have a word from the Lord. God has claimed America as his own. Should we live for him? Yes, praise God. Should we be blessed and grateful for the blessings we have in this country, that we are free to worship him? Yes, praise God. Has God used the United States in powerful ways and mission movements around the world? At one time, yes, praise God. But we are not, as Americans, God's people. And the Old Testament law is not America's law. Maybe in some ways it'd be better if some things were. It's just not the way it is. The Old Testament law was given to God's people in the Old Testament to live for him. And something drastic has changed. Something major has changed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. The Christmas story starts with him being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. What was to make the Israelites different in the Old Testament? Because in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, there was the presence of God with his people. They were to be different because God was with them. We have Jesus. The difference today is that Christ, the ultimate perfect Lamb of God, has died on the cross in our place. The difference today is that Jesus Christ is our conquering king who has risen from the dead and conquered sin and death. Everything has changed. But Jesus said this in Matthew five seventeen to make sure that we understand exactly how this has changed. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus didn't look at the law and go, nah, yeah, that's garbage, throw it away. He looked at the law and he said, all of those righteous requirements, all of those things about being perfect and holy, all of them, Jesus said, I have fulfilled them for you. He fulfills. The word literally means to fill up. Jesus Christ has filled up all the righteous requirements of the Old Testament law. He is the only way of salvation. The law, I believe, is ultimately gracious. And there's so much that we can learn from it. We learn that God, uh, that being in a relationship with God must change us. We learn that we have a mission as God's people in this world to live as his ambassadors. We learn that God graciously points out what sin is and he provides a way to deal with that sin. We learn that obedience to God comes from being saved by God and we cannot get that order wrong. And ultimately we learn we need a better sacrifice than a bunch of animals offered over and over again. We need a better priest and a better salvation. The law was a signpost with a giant arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. The one who would come to perfectly and completely fill and fulfill the law. Ultimately, it's never about us becoming good enough for God. And that's never what the Old Testament law was about. The Old Testament law was about God changing His people through His grace so that they could live in a right relationship with Him. And the only way that would happen perfectly and forever is through Jesus Christ. So that one day, those saved by Jesus Christ will stand before God in His perfect presence, unashamed and unafraid, and be declared not guilty all of heaven will ring with the truth that we're about to sing in our closing song. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to come to your law, your Old Testament law, with humility, with open hearts and open eyes and open minds. Instead of writing it off and dismissing it as just being so foreign to us. And God, it is a struggle. And yet in your grace, teach us. And God, show us all the ways that your law points to your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray as Christians today, your people, the church, saved through Jesus Christ, called into a relationship with you, called to be your ambassadors in this world. May we take seriously the truth that you deal with sin in the lives of your people. You change your people. We are to live differently. Father, there are times that's so difficult. There are times it makes us ridiculed in this world, but we have a higher calling. And ultimately, this world has a higher need. They need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in people that you have changed. And so, Father, help us to take up that call. Help us to trust in your son so completely that we know we are saved. Help us to take seriously that being saved from our sin means that we also need to be changed. Help us to lay down our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own desires, and our own wants, and to listen to what you have to say in your word and to live accordingly, Father. And through it all, help us to remember it is not us or our obedience that makes us righteous. It is your son, Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection that saves us. And in whose name we pray, amen.